Before we get into today's episode, I want you to just take a moment and think about a brand that you love. I use the word love for a reason. We like a lot of brands because we have this rational relationship with what we buy. We buy things for a purpose. But there are some brands, and you're probably thinking of a few right now, where you have this emotional relationship with the brand. It means something to you. And when you use the product or wear the product, it makes you feel a certain way and signals to other people what your values are. Well, you are part of that brand's tribe, that brand's community. And in today's conversation, we try and unpack that. It's quite a hard topic to unpack, but I think Paul does a truly wonderful job as we unpack what is brand advocacy. We start the conversation with talking about why should a brand even consider thinking about this as a channel or a strategy? What does brand advocacy actually mean and what are the impacts in the business? Because to be honest, it actually impacts the culture. It means that the functions within the business have to start thinking differently about the customer base. So we spend a bit of time thinking about that and we really try and understand how the best brands have this narrative clarity. They have an internal narrator in the business. They know who they are, why they exist, what they stand for and what they stand against. And that allows someone to go, I want to be part of that tribe or that tribe isn't for me. We explore that topic in a way to try and help you listening to this understand where you are on that journey. Do you know where you are, what you stand for? And if you do, we then start talking about how to use advocacy within your business. From using a spreadsheet and being the founder, picking up the phone, through to doing it at scale. I truly enjoyed this conversation with Paul, and I think you will do too. Before we get into today's episode, I want to say a thank you to our friends over at Bloomreach and Verse. You'll learn more about them later in the show. But right now, let's get into this conversation and unpack brand advocacy. Enjoy. Growing a business can be an absolute nightmare. One minute you're flying high, next feels like the wheels are coming off. It's thrilling, scary, it's unpredictable, and whether you're a startup or you're turning over 100 million plus, growth is really, really easy to get wrong. So we've made The Right Way to Grow podcast. It's a podcast with hosts and guests who've seen growth firsthand. They can spot the pitfalls and the opportunities, and they're gonna share their ideas and their experiences with you. If you're a growing business, want to grow a business, or are having trouble growing your business, The Right Way to Grow is the one place to come to find out how to get growing by getting all your foundations working perfectly together. So if you're currently listening to hundreds of different podcasts to try and find the nuggets and hidden gems, we're about to save you a ton of time. Every month, we'll do deep dives into big questions around growth with some very special guests. And every week, we'll fill you in on the latest hot developments in the world of e-commerce and growth, because obviously all that stuff changes every single week. So if you want to grow the right way, all you've got to do now is hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Paul, thank you so much for joining us on The Right Way to Grow. How are you? I'm very well, mate. Thanks for having me. Yeah, brilliant stuff. There's a whole range of topics that I want to jump into, but I think the best place to start, hopefully the listeners are used to my voice right now. We're going to spend more time hearing your voice. Can you do a bit of scene setting as to who you are and a bit of what Jewel does? Yeah, sure. So my name's Paul Archer. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called called Dual Technologies. Um, if you're in the US, Jewel, if in the UK, it's a bit confusing depending on where you are on which side of the Atlantic. But um, And we work with fashion and beauty brands to help them grow through their customers. So we're a software as a service platform that um, brands uses the infrastructure for managing relationships with all of the advocates across their brands. So um, everyone from their most passionate customers, their employees, their influencers, their creators, affiliates, um, and centralize it and use that to basically build out really fun, gamified programs that engage with people like you and I to actually get them to become a revenue driver, you know, uh, incentivize them and get them to go out into the world of social media, um, post about their favorite brand and actually get incentivized with it, generally with free stuff from that brand, you know, whether that's actually product or whether that's credits. Um, sometimes it's just been brought closer to the brand in many ways through a VIP experience or whatever that may be. And through this, what you're able to do is you're able to 
acquire customers for a fraction of the cost you'd be acquiring them through your ads. And, and right now, ads of cost of ads have skyrocketed over the past three years, and it's crippling many brands' margins. And and actually, what we kind of come out and say, look, you guys are sitting on this huge latent opportunity of your own passionate customers. You know, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of them, and they'll want to go out there and tell people about it, particularly when there's a good incentive off the back of it. You just have to give them the opportunity. And so we work with a lot of brands to kind of work on the strategy so they can do that. And our software powers it to allow them to do that at scale. There are so many things that I want to unpack there. That was like so concise and appreciate it. I think... Let me start with this, which is you kind of address the fact that like cost to acquire new customers higher than ever right now. Um, CPA is getting squeezed. Um, you kind of highlighted it in a way that there's brands sitting on this massive opportunity. Rationally, we all understand that, which is actually how do I activate my most loyal customers to help me go and find new ones? What was it that you saw that didn't exist in the market? Like why? I guess we can, we don't want to go into like the features and benefits of everything that the platform does. But what was the origin story or the problem that you saw as to why brands aren't already doing this? Yeah, so it, it was actually born out of a, a gaming studio that my co-founder and I used to run, where we were building a, an app, and we were pretty sure we were about to take over the world with this big app which we we're going to do a big release on and become the next snapchat or whatever it was uh, as, as you may have noticed that hasn't happened uh, and we we uh, we basically crashed and burned in a fiery pit of doom it was um it was, it was not not the most fun but but what was born from that was was a couple of things one was um an understanding of a lot of what brands were doing to try and sell advertising to them um and two is a deep understanding of virality and how apps and games grow you know how do you engage with a person in a way that means that they get stuck in the app you keep them sticky and get them to tell people you know the the measurement of um app virality they, their customer acquisition cost is always always based around the, the 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 users at the heart of it you know if they don't have some element that if i get one person on board that person is going to invite at least one maybe 1.5 maybe two different people then they go back and they make the product better uh, and this just makes total sense and, and this is just word of, word of mouth 101 but what's amazing with the app world is that you're able to measure it and you're able to put metrics about it and and you're able to track what people are doing and, and you know often you're able to track what people are not doing so you can track how many people have come through a direct ad everyone else has come through word of mouth so therefore you can measure your k factor which is you know if you remember when the pandemic came out there when everyone was talking about how viral that was this viral co-efficiency viral <laughs> coefficients. This, this is exactly what the um this is exactly what the kind of silicon valley um consumer uh, app and product world are were obsessed by many years before and so we were working in that area and we're like hang on this is this is a far superior way to to sort of sell your products and and, and i know that like I've almost never bought anything from an ad. Um, it's almost always come from someone that's told me. And I, I don't think that I'm that unique in that sense. I suspect you probably feel the same way as, as do many of the people who, who are going to listen to this. And so I was like, well, hang on a second. Why, why is 90 odd percent of every single brand in the world's investment spent on ads and things like that? And ultimately it came down to the fact is, well, it's bloody hard, right? And, and you've got to invest in something and that's something you can invest in. So we sort of set out on the idea of if we could make investing in your customer base, the pa people who passionately um, believe in what you do, what you stand for and, 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 and love what you make, and you can invest in them in the same way that you could invest in an app, then you'd have a far superior way of uh, a building an app and, and also we had to take a big chunk out of zuckerberg's empire which at the time um you know trump had just been elected in brexit just kicked off we were like this feels you know cambridge analytica was going crazy it felt like quite a noble endeavor to start with doing that um and so that was like the premise on it and and at the heart of it was this kind of belief that this is a better way to build businesses and the thing that makes the businesses fly in the world of when you're measuring word of mouth are the ones that care more about people. They care more about the customers. They care more about that customer's experience. They care um, about their employees, about the people around that, that, that their employees. It's not just the bottom line. You know, these are these are brands that will not discount massively just to, to reach next quarter's numbers because they're thinking about the experience that that customer has in a year, in three years, in five years' time, and this. Kind of fundamental principle of brand building 
then overlapped with the the more tactical elements of of virality that came from from um, from the kind of the, the gaming world of it, we realized that this is this is something really quite special here. And, and actually, this idea of brand advocacy is a category that that needs to exist in the world. And it was it, at the time it was only starting to emerge. And now it's it's much it's a much larger thing. Like we we make software that powers it, but now you can. There are many many different people in the world whose job titles are focusing on advocacy, and and they're looking at it whether that's crossing into the influencer realm whether looking at the customer side of things whether even look at the employee side of things advocacy is the purest and most effective way of building any business because well it's free first of all almost free in most scenarios and it's exponential um and it's also better for the world because you don't make those kind of short-termist approaches. You're not, you're not cutting down the trees. You're you're not just doing what you need to hit that immediate like uh, sugar high buzz that you've got from it. You're taking a long-term approach. You're investing in the people, the humans, their environment, everything about that. Because although that may not fundamentally change what happens in the next couple of months, over the next couple of years, over the next five years, ten years, you build this exponential growth machine, and that's just so much better. I guess the thing that pops up for me there, Paul, is there's, and we witnessed it firsthand, our whole, I guess, premise of helping brands grow the right way is this helping them think cross-functionally. So across all the functions within a business, how does brand creative trading paid all the way down through to CRM work together to actually create value? Whereas in most businesses we bump into, it's quite siloed. It's uh, paid media has a job and they sort of like pass the baton and then it becomes like trading, then it becomes CRM. And each one of those functions has a responsibility. But I guess from what you're sharing is someone that comes into the business, becomes a customer, and then there's an opportunity to, I guess, activate that customer through advocacy to then help you, I guess, complete the loop and fill top of funnels, bring more customers in. That's a bit of scene setting for the question, which is for the brands that do this best, are there any cultural changes or internal changes that a brand needs to think about when thinking about advocacy? There's a good question because there's, 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 there are a number, right? And so if you think about, I think fundamentally, you're almost sort of turning on the way that most people build brands on their head um, in, in the area that you focus on. Most of the time, you're focusing on the output. You're, you're focusing on the, the, the sale. You're focusing on the post. That You're focusing on the um, piece of content that's come from it. And very rarely do you focus on the person that's at the center of it. You know, if you look at any brand's technology stack that they've you know, got 10 different tools, they've got a tool which is trying to drive user-generated content. And they've got a tool that's driving referrals or affiliates they've got a tool which is um trying to track loyalty and what people spend um and only the last bit the sort of crm piece are they actually tracking that back to a person you know actually we can't say that oh hey bob you are a customer that spent this much and that you have told this many people about us and you've left five reviews and that you've gone to our open store opening and that you've posted to social media five times and that has reached you know 20,000 people and 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 right there is no mapping out of that you know people do talk about the single view of the customer but they're so obsessed about the transactions they're like, oh, yes, we can just know that you bought here and you bought this in a store and you also did this here. Like, And actually, they're missing the point because the reason why everyone else is buying is because Bob told them in the pub. And the reason why Bob told them in the pub is because the experience that they got was so remarkable when it when it came from the, 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 the brand that they started working with them for. So when to answer the question, you'll say, like, how does that how do you need to change your culture around that? It's like, well. First of all, you've got to kind of put your stake in the ground um, and say this is this is what we want to do. We we want to really focus on the on the humans, uh, on the people that are are, are are the core of this, and start to map it out. Start to and that first starts about deeply understanding them. You know, a, a lot of brands really do understand them. Um, a lot of them don't, but spend as much time as you possibly can with those people, understanding what they want, what they like, what their desires are, and how you can give back. Most of the time, as we said, talking about obsessive about transactions, it's a take. It's a take, 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 take. Never does a brand think about what they can give in other ways. Well, not never. Many brands do this very well, but, but rarely, I'd say, um, does a brand think about what I can give in return for it. Yeah, just on that, I think lots of brands think about what they can give, but they think about it purely in terms of top of funnel. And the lens of that is how much am I willing to give Facebook to acquire this customer? And let's just say that's 25 pounds. So in theory, a brand listening to this already knows that number if I'm in like, understanding this correctly is they know they're willing to spend 25 pounds to acquire the next customer 
And I guess there's a, how does a brand think about it differently? Is go, if you took that 25 quid and actually deployed it into your existing customer base, is, is that the, I guess, the topic around advocacy here, which is shifting the budget or shifting the allocation um, down into your existing customers? 100%. And so if you think about 25 pounds, if that was used in advocacy to incentivize that per- person, maybe you're even giving it on receipts of something which you've done well, which a lot of brands do with, with you know, refer a friend. They're like, give, take, you know, give this to your friend and, and, and take this. Um, I mean, most of the time, they're if you go into the data, they're being gamified, <laughs> which is something to be wary of. Like um, a lot of the times I can land on any brand's website, refer my friend, myself and instantly get a 20% discount. But generally the person running that is is uh, compensated on uh, on the revenue that they drive through these programs and it's same with the suppliers so they tend not to talk about this so but it's one thing if you're a founder i'd see if you can game it yourself you can game it. you might want to think about different ways of doing that so it's something that you know that happens post-purchase for example the very basics is why should i be able to refer a friend from the bottom of a landing page in a website as i land there it should be something that's buried for someone who's bought a product you know as those kind of basic pieces but anyway to kind of kind of come back to it like that like you were saying the that £25, and, and actually the previous question about what do you need to structurally do, if you're thinking about those people and you're thinking about the value that you can give to them, you will map things out differently. And I think, first of all, you've got that time frame that you would look at. Like, first of all, it's about, okay, well, what is a person worth to us? And what is a person who does various different things? And so most of the time, obviously obsessed with transactions, we look at Bob and we're like, Bob has, Bob has spent £752 with us. Um, and that's all we look at. Um, however, if we compare Bob to Sarah, and Sarah's only spent £400, so Sarah means nothing to us. But Bob's only opened his emails you know, three times a year, but Sarah has opened every single newsletter religiously. There's something there. She has that level of passion. And you know, maybe Sarah has maxed out on the ability she has to spend with you, but she, can, she has already bought 10 people on. And it's about looking at the different proxies that you can you can find different people that are different stages of their relationship with the brand and allowing them to go deeper and giving them the opportunity to get closer to the brand to really deeply understand your values and what you stand for. Because if you think about it, word of mouth, you're trying to get someone else to tell your brand story for you. Uh, you know, advertising is me shouting my brand story at you in the face repeatedly and going really fine to really sort of like cross slice it so I can target exactly who I want to shout out in the face very well. And it does work, right? So there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but it's become more and more challenging to to do that with a, a, as a cost effective challenge um, uh, channel these days. But if I'm thinking about <laughs> um, like that whole approach of I'm getting someone else to tell my story, what is that story? And how do you get them to tell that story in, in, in a way that is right, that's meaningful, that's also convincing on the other side as well. You've got to think about it's being received as well. And a lot of that starts with who you are as a brand and what you stand for and what your values are, and then educating those people to it. And it's like you, if you think about it from a from a kind of a, a, a meta level, when, when we look at things at, at Jewel, like our purpose is to show there's a better way to build businesses so you can build a better future, right? And, and at the core of that is we want to go out and tell everyone in the world, now we don't care if you buy our software or not. We want you to... We, we want you to just believe in this idea that you can fundamentally invest in advocacy first. And like that is the most important thing and it's core to what we believe in. If anyone says anything about us, that's what we'd want them to start with. But they're not going to do that unless we tell people that and we tell them up front and we educate them as to who we are, the values, why we believe that to be the case, rather than just go into have a battle with a provider about feature sets and all that kind of boring stuff. Like, no, I, even I don't want to talk about that. It's my company, right? So like, and, and this is just, this is for our, from our level from B2B, but every single brand has the same, um, has the same idea. Like, what is your origin story? What, how are your products manufactured? What are the values that you've got? You know, there, there are, you know, Obviously, there's there's a lot of different parts when people are trying to compete over their, their green cre- credentials. Often, there's something deeper in that. You can say why you are doing this. Where did it come from? And just getting people to learn that story, making it something which they get something in return for maybe watching a video. Maybe they get early access or a discount if they watch the video about your your brand and your your founding story. and and Or maybe they can watch another video about how your products are manufactured in a factory in a particular way that makes them better for the world or makes the products far superior to the other things. Because what happens then is that person has spent however many minutes learning about you and a brand, as a brand. And then later on in the pub, 
you know, because that's when the magic happens. We can't control that as marketers, which drives us mental. But we can't control what happens in the pub. And when when Bob tells that story to 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 whoever it is, they're like, "Oh yeah, this, I, I, this shirt comes from this brand, and they're amazing because they were started by this person doing this, and this is actually manufactured in this thing in this country, which is incredible, like this, and they're really cool." And you know, and maybe there's a let me send you a link or a code or whatever it is. But most of the time, most conversations about brands that come from word of mouth, there is no like trackable link that happens with it. And that's totally cool because the revenue, unless you're a, you know, if you're a DC, pure GC brand, the revenue tracked that haven't come through an ad or as a repeat customer that you can track through your CRM, then that only came through word of mouth. So you can look at what you've done over the past couple of, couple of months and realize and start to attribute in that kind of like loose way where this stuff is happening. And if it's going up, then you're doing something right. This episode of The Right Way to Grow is brought to you in partnership with our friends over at Verse. Verse specialized in composable commerce. And if you're like me, you've heard this term composable and headless banded about quite a bit. So I went to Verse and said, do me a favor, simplify exactly what composable commerce means because I'd love to introduce it onto the pod. Here's what they wrote back. Composable commerce is like crafting with Lego blocks, where you get to pick and piece together various elements to form something entirely one of a kind. In the world of composable commerce, it's akin to assembling a personalized toolkit of technologies and seamlessly merging them to shape your unique online store. Think of it as constructing a digital masterpiece with Lego-like components that perfectly fit your store's needs. Now we know Composable isn't a fit for everyone, but it might be a fit for you. And to find out if Composable Commerce is a fit for you, our friends over at Verse are offering listeners of this pod a completely free mini Composable Commerce audit. To grab that audit, simply head to verse.co.uk forward slash TGF. That URL again, that's verse.co.uk forward slash TGF for the Growth Foundation. Or you can simply press the link in the show notes to learn if Composable is a fit for your e-commerce journey and the right way to grow. I can sense the editor of this podcast right now saying 100% agrees. So the editor of this show is a guy called Harrison, okay? And I know him fairly well. And this is a guy who, for his whole life, I've known him for 20 years, and he's like, doesn't believe in brands, doesn't care, very functional, serves a purpose. And then a short time ago, he started to tell me about this brand called Vivo Barefoot. And I was like, okay. And he would just share with me how the shoes are made, the quality, how they do sizing, like they are... um, sustainable and everything about the brand you sort of lived and breathed it and i was trying to work out as you were just talking i was like what has triggered harrison to become from this rational purchaser of products to this advocate this emotional i'm invested and there's a couple of things that popped out as you're talking one i think some brands do a really effective job of trading from brand or trading from product where most default to trading from product because it's quantifiable. Like you say, you can't measure in the pub that word of mouth. So we kind of default to trading from product because we can measure it. And if we can measure it, we believe we can scale it. But that, I guess those brands that trade from brand are the ones that are investing into people like Harrison who are actually telling the story and taking the time to take their customers. So it becomes less of a rational purchase into more of this emotional connection with the brand so to flip that back into a question is you mentioned five, six minutes ago around actually in, empowering your customers to become your storytellers and talk about and have a connection with the brand. Have you got any examples or to bring to life how some of the best brands do that to take their customers on a journey where it doesn't just become a URL click to buy because it's been a referral system? Like how else can brands think about building advocacy? To become to really empower their customers to become storytellers compared to just link sharers. Yeah, so you kind of mentioned about brand and products. That often it can be either, right? So it's not just a pure brand thing because uh, uh, you know 
a brand stands for something that people believe in. Like the reference everyone always gives is Patagonia, and, and I'm, I'm not going to go there because everyone's gone that, done that to death. Um, but if you take from a product perspective um, and you think of very literally, I, I love GoPro as an example because what you're doing is you, you cannot tell, like everything about GoPro is about the content that is produced using a GoPro. And particularly for a period of time in 2012 or whenever it was, like half of YouTube was GoTo videos, or it was for me anyway, and it didn't have much of an algorithm back then. So um, it, it was, you know, it was be- and you knew it was GoPro because it had that look and it was doing really doing something really cool. And the video of the day was one of the the kind of most popular um, early uh, early sort of phenomenons for that. And so that's actually using the product to tell the story. And so that's a very literal sense of it. And, and that's quite hard unless you've got a business like that. But there are many other areas where companies put talk triggers. And there's a great book by Jay Bear on this called Talk Triggers, which is well worth a look. And, and he mentions um, things like Five Guys, where you know they always put there's always so much chips going on because they fill your chips up and then they chuck a bunch more because you always talk about the chips. Um, and in a similar way to um, I think it's DoubleTree, the hotel brand, they always have a cookie in the room. And there's a smell of kind of baking cookies. These are all these sort of trick, these sort of talk triggers that people come out from it. And I, I think airlines as well do do quite similar ones as well, like particularly Virgin and um, Southwest. Um, and so these are moments that when you can bake into your product experience, something that means someone else is going to talk about what you do. Um, and then you've got the, the higher level brand piece um, and what that brand represents. And when it goes beyond that, I think the easy ones for this, um, that they've got low hanging fruit are the athletic brands. Um, you've got Nike, Adidas, Lululemon, Gymshark, all of which are baking the fitness experience, in, their product into the fitness experience. Um, Lululemon were the, the OGs doing this with the first kind of vertically integrated store network who are going out into the local community and, and bringing that community into their stores for free sessions, yoga sessions and things like that. Um, then even looking at things like Nike Run Club and Adidas Runtastic, like these are both free products that anyone can use that means we get out there and we start running and they know that if you start running with that brand you associate yourself with that brand you're unlocking that thing whether that's a passion or whether it's purely fitness and you need their products to go and do that so there's lots of different ways that you start doing that and then you start talking about it and you start bringing those people into that conversation as they as they as they land on it and then the final ones i always think are the ones that really stand for something or more importantly, stand against something. You know, like if you, it's so much more powerful to hate than it is to love. <laughs> and if you think about, and this is what a lot of brands like often say, oh, we're really about this. We really like, really love the environment. Um, but actually the things that um, you see, like the classic, the Patagonia um, type model, actually Patagonia is against a lot of things, very powerfully against um, pollution or over pro- pro- um, production of, clothing then that gets thrown away and you know some deforestation or the projects of doing around rivers they're really very militantly against things and that's what gets people like really really like aligned to what they are so i always encourage brands to think about what is that one thing that gets you pissed off that you guys <laughs> you guys can get behind get amongst and and that can often get a very visceral reaction and i think the more binary that can be or the more um uh dividing that can be the better because you're never going to be a brand that everyone likes. That's fine. There's like that's vanilla as hell as well. It's not interesting. But if you can be a, a brand that a small number of people really passionately like, then you're far more likely to get that word of mouth than you are about being like, hey guys, it's an all inclusive. Everyone come here. Like Viva Barefoot is a great great experience because some people hate that brand. And that's great. That's what makes them so cool because those that love that brand like, are up in arms about it. Like your mate who was telling you about this and I'm sure he's told 20 other people about it and the running experience and how it's done for his feet or, or whatever the case is. Because there's some people, oh, it doesn't work. It's ridiculous. Uh, and that's like that kind of clash. That's when really interesting brand tribes arrive. And basically word of mouth, what you're trying to do is you're basically trying to bring someone into your brand, into your tribe. Be one of us. Like, and this brand is the scaffolding around my beliefs and my kind of core perception of who I am. And I think that you're going to be like me and I want to bring you into that. Use the word tribe then. I think that's like absolutely nailed how I think about, I guess, this world, which is when you're picking a brand, 
yes, you are. It's it's based on your core beliefs, but it's also like a signal to the world of like this is who I am, this is what I stand for. And if like you said, if you try and stand for everything, you basically stand for nothing. Like it's just vanilla. Like it's not noteworthy. It's not shareable. My question, as you were talking, then is how does a brand make sure that they don't push that? Do you know that line too far? in terms of standing for something or standing against something, when does it become more of a, because I guess if you push that to the extreme, that's what clickbait is on YouTube and so or any social channel, which is how do I ensure that I'm sticking to my brand values without being taking part in that clickbait culture just to get the click and to raise the awareness and get something that is so divisive, it has to get shared. Where's the line there? So what brand springs to mind when you're thinking about it? I can tell you were on a podcast, flipped it straight back on me. Um, what brand comes to mind? I'll be honest, there's no specific brand that comes to mind that I think pushes it and is too divisive. And that's that's probably more of an indication that because I don't... Is that where you, is that where you were was, leading me here, Paul? Question. It was a trick question. You sort of... <laughs> like, it, it, it's exactly... There are so many... There are so many brands that have vanillaized themselves. Um and um, have just become like everyone else and tried to please everyone else and just became meh. Um, and when they used to stand for something in many ways, and, and I think there are, so, there are a lot more examples of that than there are brands that pushed it too far. Okay, yeah, that's what I want to try and understand is like, I, I naturally avoid those sort of like clickbaity titles. Uh, and as you were talking then, I was like, yeah, I actually can't think of a brand because I've never... I've never engaged with them. It's not memorable. It didn't. It didn't stand for anything for me. So I guess your point is, if we think about it in terms of a scale, a brand listening to today is probably staying um, very much on the safe vanilla side compared to pushing the boundaries a little bit. And what you'd what you'd be advocating for is no, no, no. Just push yourself a little bit. If you listen to this right now, work out what you stand for and what you stand against, and then become a brilliant narrator within your business. So one, you understand it, found a leadership team. So the rest of your team understand it. So every interaction, every post, every email sort of like embodies that this is who we are, narrating this everything from the same hymn sheet. Because I'm guessing what happens here is you're narrating from the same hymn sheet from the company into your customer base is all of a sudden, because you're consistent and you know what you stand for, and it's very easy for your customers to go, this is for me or this isn't for me. Those that join your tribe can then start banging the drum for you. So I, I guess what I guess what I'm trying to pull out, and I'm kind of going down this journey in my own head, Paul, which is like fun for me actually in terms of what you triggered is. This all comes down to actually, unless you can clearly communicate who you are, where you play, and what you stand for, your it's impossible for your customer to do the same through advocacy. So before a brand even starts thinking about this it kind of feels like they need to make sure that they've got their own house in order of who they are before they try to activate their customers in terms of advocacy. Is that like a fair summary and playback? Yeah, I, th I think I think so. I think that the the risk of being too inclusive for everyone, I, I don't mean that in terms of the, the other uses of the word inclusive, I mean in like focusing on your tribe and then also trying to include another tribe into yours. But that, that, that is, brands are far more at risk of uh, over dilution than they are of um, being too narrow. And I think that there's, again, sort of pulling on that sort of Silicon Valley um, uh, kind of expertise and, and, and product development process that we, we put in from the, the virality of it. I think a lot of brands can learn that as well. And the, the really sacred sort of piece of starting a startup and finding um, what it is you do is nailing your niche and doing it, finding the right person that you find that product market fit with, right? So you have the right product that fits the market. And if your market is everyone, bloody hard to find the right product that's going to do that so you have to go as narrow as possible because when someone's if, if it's really narrow and a small handful of people they see it they go this is it it resonates with them so hard that they go and they tell people and that's how you get those those businesses that just skyrocket and do really well your friend and vivo like the idea of a a, a shoe which has your toes sticking out of them like fingers it's weird right it's it's crazy and most people aren't going to be into that um but some people love it um because 
it is divisive in that sense. And so once it, like when you really, if you think about it as a, as a, as a bullseye at the very heart of it, nailing your niche and that niche needs to be uncomfortably narrow. If you feel like this is too narrow and I won't be able to, to, to do it, maybe go a bit narrower in there would be, be my advice on it. Be, be, because actually no, no one like the, um, when you're a earlier stage brand anyway, like the, 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 the idea is that startups um, don't die from starvation. They, they die from overeating. They die from the optionality of so many different things you want to try to do. But if you really narrow down, pick that one very specific person, maybe it is fell runners in the north of England, um, <laughs> you know, who have uh, shin splints, like, like really, really, really narrow. It feels intuitively uncomfortable. And it's that counterintuitive is at, there are so many different counterintuitives around brand building. That's something I believe in quite 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 fundamentally is you've got to lean into these counterintuitives they feel uncomfortable and because they feel uncomfortable that's actually why you should be doing them so if you go really narrow into that you and then you get that small community and then they really just click you can then expand out from that a little bit at a time a little bit at a time so maybe you then go from fell runners with shin splints in the whole of england and then you could do fell runners and shin splints in the whole world actually i suspect that's quite a lot of people you've got yourself a pretty big business um so you can you go out from that side but the other bit is then it also brings other people in because you're so narrow and it has the aspiration of it so um I'll give two examples of this. One is the classic, like Harley Davidson is one of the best community-led brands in the world. Um, it's pretty divisive. You know, like for me, when I see someone like making as much noise in the motorbike, I just throw them like, oh, God, like Jesus, just <laughs> old man. Like <laughs> really should not be wearing leather. Um, but the that's like one angle. Of them. Some people, that is the biggest, most passionate thing that they love and they go for it. And then, they got that. So if you're a motorbike rider and you go in for that kind of thing, you, you, that really creates your niche and you find your people and entire motorbike gangs and everything have been born from this. But then there's a hot, massive industry that Harley Davidson have done better than anyone else and bar possibly Disney. And that's all the periphery products that they can sell. You know, they make as much money, if not more, actually, I don't know the data on this, from selling merch that has nothing that, that people who have never even ridden a motorbike are buying. Um, and so it will bleed out if you get that kind of lifestyle and that tribe really well. And, and, and another example is outdoor brands. Um, so you can take any, any one of them. Then they're off like North Face, Rab, Patagonia, Arcturix. Um, they are built for the extremes. People go to the North Pole and their products. People climb Mount Everest and their products. It's, it's, they're incredible. You, you keep you warm. They can be screwed up really, really small. They're incredibly light. They have the engineering technology that goes into it is huge. But 90% of the people that buy that put that gilet over their suit to get on the tube to go to the city of London, and maybe to sit outside the pub whilst they have a pint, right? Uh, and so, like, but they're wearing it because of the performance element. And they, and and that is that kind of reflected glory they've got because the outdoor brands had nailed their niche. A brand like Rab was started by, by a climber for climbers, same with Patagonia. I'm sure it's the same with all of them, actually. Um, and they really deeply build products for the people that they believe in. It's all about being at the top of the mountain. It's most certainly none of their advertising content that you ever see them will be <laughs> like fat blokes in suits outside pubs. That's just not interesting, yet that is where their money comes from. But it's because of the niche uh, that they've managed to, to, to really truly nail that they're able to expand out and build these massive businesses. Paul, I don't think anyone's summarized in terms of I like building brand equity aspirationally. And I've listened to hundreds, probably thousands of hours of podcasts. Like I'm I'm gonna take that last three minutes and make that into some version of a short because I think every listener just needs to be able to replay that as to like find your niche, make it um, uncomfortably narrow and then become this aspirational brand for those few people build the tribe and then the rest will follow that's kind of like my headline summary and what to take away let me just let me just move the conversation slightly on to the brands that are doing that right now but aren't engaging in advocacy because i, I really want to leave people with some tactical takeaways so they go actually now i'm pretty sure as a brand we know who we who we are what we stand for what we stand against but we're not yet really engaging our customers and supporting them to become advocates. What's the first steps that a brand listening to this should be should be trying if they go, actually, I quite like the sound of this. What's the first step to be successful using advocacy as a channel? What kind of stage? We think about really, really early stage. We think about someone who's a bit more established and they think about what, what I can do to make sure I hit 2024's numbers. 
let's assume that the brand has got product market fit, has a, a paid channel that's effective, has a growing CRM, thousands of customers have sort of passed that have we got product market fit stage? I think that's where the majority of listeners will be sitting, but they haven't yet started to think about um, investing into advocacy programs. So I think first of all, product market fit is a very interesting inflection point. Um, and it seems to be about the seven million pounds, $10 million turnover brands. Um, a lot of the times there'll be a lot of brands who are thinking this, who are doing a couple of million and think that they're, they're absolutely smashing it. And, and, and they are doing really, really well. But they haven't quite got product market fit, and with well, or brand market fit is what I like to call it. Um, in the to, to translate it into this world, basically what it means is if you release another product uh, that's totally different to the one you're doing, you have a core group of people that will buy it. Uh, uh, roughly, I, I think roughly a thousand. I'm kind of stealing from Kevin Kelly's sort of um, seminal thousand true fans um, piece. But like, if you've got a thousand people that will buy anything from you at all you've got a pretty sub- substantial business that can go in, a, in another direction in the example I, I, I always think of is glossier you know the makeup brand with such a kind of a, a particular colorway that you would like bend over backwards just to get the little bag that the products came in and showed everyone that that was what you, you did with it if they released a vacuum cleaner or a scarf tomorrow They'd still, they'd sell a thousand that instantly, right? And and that is because they've got really hard brand market fit. So that's first one. I always think it's a good good stage. And before that, everyone else they need to get out there and hustle, and they need to tell their story to every single person they possibly can until you have a thousand people that know your story so well that they because they will then bring in tons, you know. And and that's like a, probably a hundred thousand orders at least. Right? So so like only one percent of the people are going to be that passionate. But once you've got that. It's that flywheel of growth, the ability to go from $10 million to $20, $30, $40 million becomes considerably easier. And you'll see that within the kind of growth curve. We work with a lot of brands and talk to hundreds of brands every single year. And you see that there's a huge number below that 10. But there aren't that many who who aren't that go who don't go from 10 to 30. Um, and up from there, it's like once you hit that critical mass, it be- I'm not saying it becomes easier, but like when you look at the odds, it's it's quite an interesting area. I'm sure the- they have different growing pains at that point. It's like kind of less about product at that point. It's all the other growing pains that take place in a growing business from that like 10 to 25 million GMV. Exactly. It's warehousing and all that other thing. Before that, it is a founder-led piece. You cannot really scale the the brand building piece. It's got to be a narrative that the founder gets out there and they meet people and they shake, shake hands and they're in the store and they're on the road and they're at events and they're responding to the DMs on Instagram. Most, most founders are too big and important and busy to respond to their customers and speak to them directly. And I I guarantee you, none of them have picked up the fucking phone. Like this is just a basic, basic piece, right? So, um, like the uh, that ha- like ask every all the founders, none of them have picked up the phone just to call a customer. Like, I recommend every single founder does this. Like every single week, pop an hour in, ring the last five people that bought a product. If you've got their numbers, and just say, "Hey, how you doing? I'm the founder." I just wanted to say thanks for buying this. But, and most of them will take the call because they'll be like, what, this never happens <laughs> because it never happens. And and it just, I would just wanted to talk to you about it. How was the experience? How did you hear about it? How did it make you feel? And what you'll hear is you'll hear the real stories from that about how advocacy happens. So like I, I'm kind of indirectly answering your question and like where, where are the areas to start? deeply understanding the people and why they tell your story. Because you may well, if you have 10 calls, you'll probably pattern match five of them to learn something new that maybe these guys all learned about it on Reddit. You're not even on Reddit. You don't, whatever it is. Like There are loads of these different things. So speak to people, understanding them, understanding their whys. Why did they buy your product? It, it, in many cases, it's not what you thought it was. You know, in, in they, they bought it because someone said it was really good for something else. And if you hear it enough times and you can lean into that, and that's how you can kind of start to expand that that brand market fit piece out to create those evangelists. Because if you spoke to that person, they then go in the pub that night. Oh, yeah, I'm wearing this thing. You know what? The founder called me. I spoke to the founder. Yeah, we're on like first name terms. You know? And it feels special. You're suddenly making, you're allowing the customer to become a part of your story. Uh, and there is nothing that drives word of mouth more than a f- sense of ownership. Like the, the, I would recommend that every brand, every consumer brand, should do a crowdfunding where possible. If if they if you sell to you know uh, middle aged 
blokes um you can kill it on crowdfunding if you sell like wine or or like brew dog and things like that with middle-aged blokes they basically every single conversation in any given brew dog pub in anywhere in the world there'll be a bloke there going i'm actually a shareholder um <laughs> you know and, and actually like they're you know they're all in another pub previously and they're like where should we go and and uh, and and bob's there going well i'm a shareholder let's go to brew dog and then he tells them all about how early he was in it and all this kind of stuff paul the editor right now by the way harrison the only two brands it's vivo barefoot and it's brew dog because he's a shareholder i know right now he's in stitches at that and you're <laughs> you're, you're, you're honestly preaching to the choir because from my side, my first role was in telesales, 150 calls a day. I'm very comfortable on the phone. I sort of founded a business in 2013. I used to do 30 calls a week. And this is this is God's honest truth for what you just said. 30 calls a week, speak to the customers. Um, and we learned actually that how we were marketing our business was um, the customer play back their why, and that helped us reframe our proposition. It was, it was around trades professionals, and we always consider them as trades, plumbers, plasterers, decorators. And the, the pain point they kept playing to me was like, I need to learn how to run my business. So we reframed all of our messaging to be business owner first, trades professional second. And we used to speak to trades in that language because that's how they thought, but no one else spoke to them like that. And I never would have got that language back from them unless I'd picked up the phone and understood the, why did you join? What are you trying to solve? How can we help? What can we do better sort of attitude? I would, I would desperately um, advocate for every founder in the business right now, take some time to the customers because it's amazing what you'll learn and like you say even if they're not physical shareholders they feel like owners so then they go into places we built our business in facebook groups basically for like gas chat plum chat that industry and it's all of a sudden just had a phone call from the founder of expert trade like it's it grows very quickly just by taking some time and investing time not even capital not even discounts not even anything just time into your customers yeah that was a huge learning curve for me as well sorry i i interrupted because of the brew dog thing and i can see how i can hear harrison laughing right now well, any, anyone who's been there has been there, right? We've all, all heard that. Um, it, it, it's a big part of it, but you can see the power of ownership. And it's the same as what you're doing there with the, the phone call is that you're actually allowing them to own a bit of your story. So it, when they feel ownership of it, your story becomes their story. And the reason why everyone does everything is because of their ego. So if you're suddenly allowing that person to feel a level above than they were previously like when they talk about what you do whether it's a special thing or whether it's exclusive or they're letting the world know about something that other people don't know about or the fact that they actually own a bit of it you're giving them a thing for them to kind of brag about in many ways to their people to their network to whether that's people in the pub or whether that's on social media so like which to because you said you wanted to go tactical like let's let's get into that bit there right because if you if you think about getting a person to talk about you on social media. Like, first of all, they probably won't. Right? Most people don't hashtag brands. Um, and when they do, they often will only do a particular set of brands. Like Harrison will only probably would post and hashtag about Vivo and BrewDog, but he would laugh in your face if... Uh, you know, ASOS asked them to do it or, or whatever the case, even if he were is head to toe in it all day long, just because he doesn't feel that emotional connection. So, um, so two things, one, whether they are a true fan enough to want to talk about it. And, and two, whether they're the kind of person that'll do that. And the kind of person that does it, they're, they're generally, um, they're on the hustle. They're, uh, they'll probably self-identify as a creator. Um, and they will be looking for ways they can elevate their creation. So whether that's through podcasts, as this is a medium, or whether you're looking at this in TikToks or whether you're looking at Instagram, this is the kind of pool of people that a brand can start tapping into. This episode of the podcast was brought to you in partnership with our friends over at Bloomreach. Bloomreach empowers businesses to deliver personalized experiences across their digital channels by combining the power of unified customer and product data with the speed and scale of AI optimization. Bloomreach ensures the right product is put in front of the right customer at the right time. When I learned about this, I said, hey, have you got some examples so I can bring it to life on the podcast? And they said, we can do one better. There's a whole use case library with everything from how to retain customers' time on site with similar and co-viewed products, increasing AOV by showing customers their last viewed items at checkout, through to how to personalize offers based on customer preferences and contextual personalization. To see how Bloomreach can support your e-commerce strategy, 
from SMS reminders to personalized product recommendations. Simply press the link in the show notes and you'll be taken over to the Bloomreach use case library, where there's 77 use cases that will show you how to use Bloomreach to grow the right way. How? that I, I can hear it already. The listeners is like, Paul, I get it. I want to be able to amplify my fans, but some people are not on social, don't self-identify as creators, don't want to engage. How does a brand listen to this start to identify those people? Or is it a case of you empower all of your community and like the ones that resonate with it, pick it up? Or is it more of a, we start to build segments and go after these people that we know based on some signals that we're collecting elsewhere that actually let's empower this person? It, it would be the former, I'd say, because allow them the opportunity to do it. Instead of creating barriers, like open the, the door up and then elevate those to become closer and closer. So if you say, um, you know, ba- basic sort of techniques for trying to drive this, and this is social commerce, right? So social commerce is any commerce revenue, which has been driven by um, the advocacy of a person on social media. It doesn't matter whether they buy online or offline. If, it, if I see you talking about a product and I go and buy it, that is social commerce. And so... Um, that that's actually the magic and that's this is this is absolutely exploding this is the biggest opportunity for pretty much every single brand um in if, over the next not just 2024 over the next five years it's set to, to you know it's 5x in the past two years in in asia um and it's set to be f- more than 40 percent of revenue by 2030 so it's a, it's a sizable chunk in terms of the direction you're trying to get after that and this is all happening through lots of people talking about it social media there are no centralized um content creators anymore in the in the terms of publishers you know actually social media is user generated in its essence some of those users have far more far larger audiences than others but at the heart they are just like you and me they are our users so for a brand to tap into that opportunity they have to tap into a lot of different users and so when you have that mentality you don't do the kind of classic influencer approach of right i'm going to go to a marketplace and then I'm going to do a search and I'm going to find all the people who talk about the industry that I'm in and I'm going to send them a message and say, hey, can I pay you to pretend to like my product that you've never heard of? Uh, and they say, well, yes, you can pay me lots of money. Here's my rate card. And so you start, so you go, okay, great. And you're paying through the teeth, uh, through the nose and initially because actually these guys don't care about who you are, which is, in, and when they then create content, it's inauthentic because they're not a fan of it. And we all know it and we sniff it out. And it's just a blight and a plague across social media of just shit content from people who've been paid to do it. And therefore, this as a channel has just massively like re- decreased in the past. Um, like the influencer marketing piece has decreased in terms of budgets over the past couple of years. That's not to mean that social commerce isn't exploding because social commerce is coming from advocates and the advocates are authentic. And if you want an authentic advocate, where are you going to find them? Well, you're going to probably find them in people who use your customer, who use your products. And those people are, well, they're probably your customers. And wouldn't it be great if you had a massive database of custom of people who've bought your product uh, or who just have opted in to just hear about your product at all times? It's just like, well, actually, I think they kind of do. You've got a CRM and where you can engage with people. Or, and you also have your social media handles. So if I've clicked, I want to follow your brand. I'm interested enough in it. And if you then send me a message and say, would you like to talk about us? And in return, we'll give you some free stuff. I'm like, well, I value the free stuff enough because I know about it. I know who you are because I'm following you or I've already bought some of that stuff previously. And so that as a fundamental principle, I think is where most people get it wrong. Uh, and it's super easy to turn that around. You're just fishing in the wrong place. Um, so presuming we are fishing in the right place, we are going to be engaging with actual customers. And then what happens after that? So what what you should look at then is actually giving them the opportunity to put their hands up. Because although I may follow you or I may have bought the product, I may not be either the person that will post about a brand on social media, or I may not post about your brand on social media. And that's totally cool. But if you market to me, you're not, you're not, rec- you're not, you're not uh, headhunting me specifically. You're saying, would you be interested in being a brand ambassador for us? Apply here, for example. Um, and the kind of person who's interested in them will put their hands up and they'll say yes. And 
to talk through the numbers of what that looks like, Instagram, for example, you'll have um, just over 25% of your customer base have more than 2,000 followers. You, unless you're exceptionally popular at school and you're you know, 18 in a big, big school, it's very unlikely you've got 2,000 followers unless you've actively created content to increase your audience, which means that you're predisposed probably to be the person who's going to be posting about that stuff. So, um, And then actually just over 4% of them have more than 10,000 followers. And so you've actually got a re- one in 20 of your entire Instagram following will have more than 10,000 followers. That's pretty sizable. So... Um, basically by saying would you be interested in doing this marketing it posting it regularly not just once putting it into your emails showcasing your ambassadors saying this is what bob did bob's coming back a lot but but this is what bob did um for us and he's our ambassador of the month you can be an ambassador too sign up here and then when you sign them up then you can then start segmenting and figuring out but the fact is these are people who want to get out there and hustle on your behalf um and i think the kind of bits that happen in there like you can you can test this as a model instantly. Any brand can test as a model by whipping up a type form and pushing it out to your customer base and seeing how many people respond. If you're a small brand, if you're like pre 10 million or so, you generally can manage this in a spreadsheet and it's fine and the founder should do it because these people will feel that really deep connection with them. You can, you can get them to sign up, you can email them, ask their numbers, do a WhatsApp group, then start sending out like briefs basically hey does anyone want a free pair of shoes for our new release and create some content on behalf of it yeah a bunch of them says yeah i would <laughs> you know <laughs> like you you ship it out to them like it's manual it's hard but the, what you're going to get from it because if you've got 100 people and on average they've got i don't know 5000 followers the engagement rate of people with much smaller audiences, first of all, is is, is about ten times higher. Um, not quite, but but yeah, uh, it's a, a lot higher. And then you've got half a million people there instantly, and real authentic piece that comes from it. And then that will then start that ball moving. At some point, when you've got a hundred, or you've got 200, 300, 500, it's probably going to break apart, and you're going to need some software to do it. Um, and like we work with, Jewel works with tons of brands we were about 60 different brands the biggest brands in the world um in in fashion and beauty to allow them to do that a massive scale we've got programs with tens of thousands of people in to, to turn real customers into basically either an affiliate or an ambassador um and like affiliates generally are thought of as you know someone who writes a blog and features your brand but most people's attention is focusing on social media these days. So why can't you turn the people who create content on social media into affiliates? And so that is a groundswell. Anyone should be allowed into to their own kind of social affiliate program. And then from there, a small selection of those will be really good creators. And you want them to be ambassadors, just like an ambassador for a country. You're anointed by the brand. Yeah, you can become an ambassador. You can represent our views. You're on brand. You don't talk about crazy stuff. We don't want you to. You know, you look all right. And we've maybe given you a bit more training. And you can build a community of those curated ambassadors who tend to often be a bit more influencery in their nature. And you have this always on resource, regardless whether you use software or not, you've got this resource of, com- of building a community of people that love your brand, have self-opted in to start hustling on your behalf, generally in return for free stuff, not even wanting to get paid. Um, and you can then call on them for anything you want. Whatever's happening in your brand calendar, you involve them in it. And this becomes this engine of growth that can quite quickly become one of your biggest um, customer acquisition channels. Paul, me and you could spend hours on the mics. I get the sense that me and you could probably put the world to rights and all things communities ambassadors because you, you said that word at the end about community. And I've probably spent the last 10 years of my professional career building communities for my own brands and, and clients. I can very much sense a part two of this conversation coming on because I actually want to potentially break down some of the stuff that you just shared into like stepping stones of actually going from the spreadsheet into the technology and then into this curated. That was really interesting for me to work out how you go from spreadsheet to created community of these uh, anointed uh, ambassadors for the brand. But right now, in terms of where can people go to learn more about you? I know you've got your own podcast and I know if people are interested right now, that is probably the number one place to drive people to just to carry on this conversation. That's building brand advocacy. So if you're interested in this topic, head over guys, pause this show right now before the final call to action at the end, pause it. You still haven't paused it, pause it, head over, 
go to building brand advocacy, hit subscribe and carry on the conversation. Uh, I just know there's a tremendous amount of content there if you're interested in this space. And Paul, any any final words before I bring you back for part two of this show? <laughs> well, appreciate that. Yeah, and, and it's been a real adventure kind of rolling out that podcast and we, we've been doing it for about a year and a half now. And and now we have the, the CMOs of some of the greatest brands in the world coming on it quite, quite consistently and just as well as founders and learning their stories about how they did it. And they echo the same things that we've been talking about today. It's always, if you build, if you turn brand building on its head and you look at the first principles of where it comes from, instead of what the kind of the commonly held practices are, and you think it's, it's generally people who are passionate about what you do telling other people about it and so if you build your organization with that at the core you have to take a long-term view of this but it's a long-term exponential view and it's so much more powerful than a lot of that short-term that people do so i'd encourage people to look at that um they're, they're welcome to find me on, on linkedin um yeah the podcast is a great place to talk about it and you know, if you're one of the larger fashion and beauty brands you know sort of 20 30 million turnover and up and you're already pulling your hair out by this stuff then um the dual software is a great option but shameless plug aside i think i think most people can get there and should get there without any of our help and i'd encourage everyone starts there first they they don't need to spend tens of thousands of pounds on a piece of software they, they just have this stuff in a spreadsheet as with every other channel you test it and you iterate and you learn. And if it's working, you lean into it. If it's not working, then you you find another alternative for it. And so that's where I'd say that most people should should start on this. Um, and I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's been, been a real blast. Really enjoyed it, Paul. What a wonderful wrap up. Stay well, mate. And I look forward to having you on again. Cheers, mate. As we wrap up today's episode, I want to say thank you for tuning in. And I truly hope you enjoyed it. If you're new to the podcast, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you get notified the next time we drop an episode. If there are any questions or follow-up topics you wish I got to with today's guest, please email me. It's adam at thegrowth.foundation. That's adam at thegrowth.foundation because I've told all guests I might follow up for a quick 5-10 minute follow-up show in case there's anything our audience wanted us to get to. Anything that we've covered in today's show, you can find as links in the show notes of the podcast, as well as links to our partners, Bloomreach and Verse. And lastly, if you haven't yet joined our newsletter, make sure you do. We've got something special planned for the end of season one, where we're taking 10 listeners of this podcast out for dinner as a little thank you for being a subscriber. Stay well, speak soon. I'll catch you next time on The Right Way to Grow.